This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Joshua Taylor. Thank you for having me. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. America's election was on Tuesday, and we still don't know for sure which political party will control the Senate or the House of Representatives. Three governor's races are still undeclared. What is taking so long? A lot of people smell something fishy. For answers, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this is definitely one of the more drawn-out elections in American history with three governor seats, four Senate seats, and 32 House seats still uh, undeclared. Now, um, Democrats, their big storyline that this is just an absolute disaster for uh, Donald Trump and the Make America a Great Again movement. Now, Donald Trump disagrees with that. He, uh, he was on Truth Social this morning, uh, kind of chastising Republicans for being <laughs> overly pessimistic. He's like, mm-hmm. he's like, yeah, okay, so this was a pretty good night for us. He's like, said, we took back the House, we got rid of Nancy Pelosi, and we'll only lose the Senate if there's widespread cheating. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, we'll see. I think I think it definitely looks right, even though there's those, th- those 32 races undeclared in the House. It does look like they will take back the House. They will get rid of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, though, we'll, those four Senate races, he's probably right that they'll only lose them if there's widespread cheating, although we're starting to get reports in of widespread cheating Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the big story we're watching going forth forward the uh the four states the four senate states in play right now are alaska arizona georgia and nevada now alaska is the one where we actually do know uh someone who's called a republican (laughs) will win the state it's it's a runoff between a a very pro-trump uh Republican uh, challenger, uh, and then the famous anti-Trump Republican, uh, Lisa Murkowski, who's <laughs> one of the two or three Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, the, I think, both times. So uh, Alaska is going to go to runoff, I believe, on the 23rd, November 23rd. So we won't know until the end of the month which of those two candidates uh, is going to win Alaska. The other three states are definitely a, a knockdown, dragout fight between Republicans and Democrats. Now, Arizona, the uh, the Democrat Senator Mark uh, Kelly, he looks like he has a fairly comfortable lead and um, uh, could win the state. But Maricopa County officials are reporting that one in five ballot tabulating machines are malfunctioning. And so anyone familiar with like the, the infamous Maricopa County recount and audit from the last election shows that there's definitely if if the democrats win there's definitely be a question mark over that election for a while as they continue investigating because yeah their voting machines in that county are just like horrendous they they should have replaced them all after (laughs) last election because you're still having these same problems uh georgia is going to go to a runoff uh State law there says that you it's not just simple majority. You actually have to have more than 50 percent mm-hmm. and neither the Republican or the Democrat will get more than 50 percent. So we won't know that anything there till like December 6th. Uh, and then Nevada, the Nevada to me is probably the most <laughs> the most concerning at all. It looks like the Republican candidate is leading, though they're not going to announce um, any winner till next Friday. And that's because uh, Nevada is one of these states that they're actually still accepting mail-in ballots till Saturday. Uh, I think they had 400 more arrive yesterday. Uh, And then even after they get Saturday, they've got like a curing process where they have to go back and check the post dates because they're supposed to have been mailed before election day, but they can arrive till Saturday. So they'd go back and check whether... (laughs) hopefully check whether the acts they were mailed before election day or whether just someone just signed a bunch of ballot harvesting 
yesterday uh, and dumped it in there. But it seems like Nevada has a really high chance of fraud just because oh, I think it's like something out of 40 out of 43 European nations just don't deal with this melon absentee mm-hmm. ballot thing because like stuff like this happens. Right. Um, and so that's definitely one of the states that have uh, <laughs> a pretty horrible record. And so between a, between the three of them, the voting machines in Arizona, the uh, like the mysterious late night ballot dump in Georgia, and the uh, these mail in ballots trickling in all the way till tomorrow in Arizona, that's that's definitely what Donald Trump's talking about when he says that. Well, we had a good night. He said we took back the House, we got rid of Nancy Pelosi, and we will take back the Senate mm-hmm. unless people in Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada cheat which they may be trying to do yeah it's uh it's disturbing uh to to see this taking place the way that it's happening it's clear that uh many of the problems that marred the 2020 election were not dealt with particularly in these democrat controlled areas you see states like um like texas states like florida where you had a republican in control who made a priority to clean up the problems with voting. And so there was a, a, a fair election in those states. The, everything was counted very expeditiously and clear Republican victories in those states. Other areas Democrat controlled that were meant to be fairly competitive ended up being heavily uh, Democrat. Uh, and it's just impossible not to, not to view this as uh, there was funny activity going on in some of those areas. And, and the, uh, Donald Trump and others have made the point that until this is cleaned up, we, we just cannot expect to have free and fair elections. But you, you view it in light of uh, America Under Attack uh, and our, our editor-in-chief's book about what is really happening, this affliction that, that the United States is suffering from right now, what the real cause of it and the spiritual dimension to what is is happening, and you see that there is a a lot to be concerned about uh, for for America's future. Uh, at the same time, you have this this prophecy that Gerald Flurry has been uh, drawing attention to that things will turn around for a short time. That uh, Donald Trump is going to come back in power, and you could see still, depending on what happens here over the next few weeks. Uh, Republicans get enough control over these levers of power that they're able to to actually effect some change in some of these uh, really key areas. Right. Yeah. Because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Flurry has definitely made that point uh, pretty consistently. That, that this doesn't look like it's something where Donald Trump can just run in the twenty twenty four election and get elected and have a second term. The the normal way if Mm -hmm. there's not some if there's not some battle to expose what happened in the 2020 election then they'll just steal the they'll just steal the next one and trump's been making that point as well i think yeah you mentioned that where like uh, he talks about election fraud all the time and republicans are keep uh keep urging him it's like well stop talking about election fraud so much and uh and just focus on winning the 2024 race but he's like no you say you can't <laughs> you can't win in 2024 until you fixed um what happened in 2020 uh, and right. this this election's kind of proof of that that like they didn't fix what happened in 2020 and now you've got like the same six states <laughs> i guess the margins were a little different that it looks like it's only going to be a, a battle in three of those swing states for the senate races uh mainly because michigan didn't have a senator up for re-election this time but so but that does have to happen and uh and like you said it's like really um i guess you never know what twist and turns politics gonna take but it really seems like the only way (laughs) you're gonna expose what happened in 2020 is you actually have a house investigative committee look into what happened in 2020 and there have been requests for that last july uh, one of the republican senators actually wanted to uh, have the house of representatives investigate uh, the claims dinesh d'souza made in 2000 mules and that didn't happen because the republicans didn't control 
the house. Mm. And so if they control the house now, that opens some doors for some of those investigations like that to happen. It would be better if they controlled the Senate because sometimes sometimes the Senate can block what the House wants to do. Uh, and so it, that would be the best be the best circumstance for people wanting to expose election fraud is to have uh, a Republican victory in the Senate uh, and, and hopefully a Republican victory that doesn't include uh, Lisa Murkowski because she 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 often does if if uh, if a Republican ever votes with the Democrats it's either her or Susan Collins. Yes, sir. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. Please do keep your eye on uh, thetrumpet.com. Listen to The Trumpet Daily. Stephen Flurry has been all over this story all week, and uh, we are looking forward to uh, seeing the outcome of some of these these races that are yet undeclared because it really does uh, have a lot uh, to determine what the future for America is going to be. And and, uh, one would hope that the fraud and the corruption would be exposed. Uh, We will see what what God allows. Uh, We appreciate you bringing that story to us. The election last week in Israel delivered a much more decisive result, bringing former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu back to power. The Biden administration is no great friend of Netanyahu and wasn't at all excited to see him return. We'll learn about this from Joshua Taylor. Yeah. So with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's victory, of course, as with most politicians, world leaders are calling in to congratulate you. What was interesting was for the first five days, there was no call from Israel's greatest ally, the United States. It was complete silence until, again, five days later on Monday, Joe Biden finally did call. And they did offer congratulations. Uh, according to Netanyahu's spokesman, the call lasted about eight minutes, and it was very warm and friendly. Both men emphasized strong connections uh, between the two nations, and it sounded pretty good on the surface. But with this, you really do have to read in between the lines. And again, it took Biden five days to call Netanyahu. And these are the types of uh, signals that, you know, just looking at it without knowing the nuances of uh, international diplomacy wouldn't necessarily think a whole lot of. But five days is a lifetime when you're talking about uh, allies congratulating one another after a victory like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, again, for if you know, on the surface, it doesn't seem like much. But like you said, in terms of international relations, you know, the image that you project is everything. Mm-hmm. And being one of the last nations to congratulate, again, arguably one of your greater allies, that doesn't show a lot of confidence in that in that leader or that nation. And even worse, uh, the White House uh, spokesman, Karine Jean-Pierre, she said that the administration would be would, quote, continue to closely monitor the government formation process, which is sounds kind of weird. Why would you be monitoring this? And it comes down to the coalition that uh, is surrounding Benjamin Netanyahu that Mm -hmm. he's using to form. It's going to be a very conservative, religious, um, and as the media would put, maybe even far right uh, coalition. And if you want to see how what Biden thinks of that kind of a party, you just kind of have to look at what Biden's been uh, doing in the United States, the way he's been treating his uh, opposition here, you know, calling them right wing MAGA extremists. You had that speech, that infamous speech from him very recently, where he basically called MAGA Republicans the greatest threat to democracy. And that's you can imagine that's the way he's looking at Netanyahu. But if the interesting thing is that you have to look back to why he's viewing Netanyahu this way. Like, why is this? Why is there already this bad blood? And it goes all the way back to Barack Obama and his administration. Yeah. Uh, Gerald Flurry has written a lot about this. Maybe you can just bring us up to speed. Uh, this is in America Under Attack. It's in his former book, Great Again, uh, the, the last book that he wrote about this. There's a whole chapter about this, uh, the relationship between the Obama administration and Israel and Netanyahu specifically. Yeah. With um, when Barack Obama was in office, he habitually snubbed, insulted, backstabbed and undermined Netanyahu continually. And Netanyahu, he wasn't afraid to stand up to a Barack Obama, which just, you know, angered Obama even more. And it all gets back to Barack, what's behind even Barack Obama, which is a spirit that we've talked about and that Mr. Uh, Flurry goes into America under attack. And that's this that's Satan, the devil, quite literally behind Barack Obama. And if it's in, what's interesting is Biden, when he was talking to uh, Netanyahu over the phone, he said, we are brothers. We will make history together. 
And what's interesting is how literally true that is. And I don't use the word literally lightly. Uh, Herbert W. Armstrong wrote a book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, where he definitively proved that uh, the United States and Britain and Israel are related blood brothers. They all go back to ancient Israel, uh, specifically the U.S. being the tribe of Manasseh. So when uh, Biden says that they're brothers, that's actually literally true. And because behind Joe Biden is Barack Obama and behind Barack Obama, is Satan, the devil, Satan hates anything to do with Israel, anything to do with God, you know, the nation that was chosen by God, that was God's special people. So that's why we see this, this attack on Israel from, from Barack Obama and the left. And you might go back and think about, well, how is this going to affect, you know, the relationship between the two nations going forward? Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting prophecy in Hosea 5 verse 13, which talks about how when Israel runs into some great trouble coming here in the near future, they're going to turn not to their brother, not to Britain or the United States, you know, their greatest ally. They're going to turn to a historical enemy. The Bible says to, that they're going to look to Assyria, or which is the, uh, the biblical name for modern Germany. And why would they do that? Could it be that Israel no longer trusts the United States or that that special bond that these two nations have had has been just trashed by, the, by a Satan-inspired administration that we see now? Right. That's a, a very good uh, prophecy to focus on when you see this, this division between the uh, United States and Israel. And what does Israel do when they lose the uh, support of their, their strongest ally? Uh, I, I would imagine that this will change once uh, the political situation in the United States changes. Uh, we will see what happens there. But we do have an article up on the website right now, What Does Biden Think of Netanyahu? And it points to uh, the United States and Britain in prophecy showing this prophetic link between these two countries, as well as uh, America under attack, the book that exposes this uh, spiritual dimension to the uh, the scene in America that uh, Mr. Taylor was just referring to. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. Over to China now, where we see a nation on heightened military footing readying itself for war. To learn about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, this was on Tuesday that Chinese President Xi Jinping visited the command station for the Central Military Commission in Beijing. And he made a, you know, an inspection there that was pretty standard. But then he gave a speech directed at the entire People's Liberation Army. And the message was just a thundering order to prepare for war. In one part of this, she said... The entire military must focus on combat ability as the fundamental and only criterion. Concentrate all energy on fighting a war, direct all work toward warfare, and speed up to build the ability to win. So, you know, just a, a remarkably direct order here. Don't worry about the economy. Don't fret over politics or anything else. Just get ready for war because it's coming and we need to focus all resources on it so that we can win. Um, so I think there is a fair amount of subtext here because Xi Jinping has been, I think, just as surprised as the rest of us to see how poorly Russian forces are doing in the war against Ukraine. She has been sobered, I think, by the way America and other Western nations have just armed Ukraine to the teeth and the way America and Britain have trained Ukrainian soldiers, training them in the most advanced battlefield techniques and how to use all that advanced weaponry. And then the Russians, on the other hand, have fallen just really short of expectations. Their training is woefully inferior to that of the Ukrainians, their weapons too, in most cases. And so Xi Jinping sees all of that, and he's sobered by it, and he's telling his troops that this cannot be the same situation with China. Um, you know, because the People's Liberation Army actually has no battlefield experience. They have no combat experience. And there are accusations sometimes saying it's kind of a paper tiger. So I think Xi Jinping is recognizing all of that. And instead of denying it, he's saying we need to change. We need to focus everything we've got on being able to fight, not just as well as America, but better. And we need to get there yesterday. This uh, hearing this coming from uh, China's president, it's remarkable just how open and uh, overt these kinds of calls for uh, for war preparations are. I guess uh, this is coming at a time when 
you see tensions over Taiwan increasing, and this is a situation that we're watching very closely. How much does uh, th this rhetoric from Xi uh, alarm those in Taiwan? Yeah, I think it's I think it's incredibly alarming to them because Taiwan is really at the center of this whole story. We know that China claims Taiwan as its own. Xi Jinping has often threatened to use military force to conquer Taiwan. He has really staked a fair amount of his legitimacy as China's leader on the promise to subdue Taiwan. And so he detests any sort of uh, moved, moves towards stronger Taiwanese independence. And it's no coincidence that just a few days before she gave this order to his military, the UK sent their trade minister to Taiwan to engage in the highest level in-person trade talks that Britain has had with Taiwan for uh, for a few years. So this is similar to US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan back in August. And Xi Jinping views both of these visits as just about the most infuriating thing he can imagine. He sees these as direct challenges to his claims, and he sees them as just, I think, a big encouragement to Taiwanese independence. So what we've had over the last few days is very similar to what we had back in August after that Pelosi visit. And that is dozens of incursions by Chinese warplanes into airspace near Taiwan. These are very provocative and dangerous. They force the much smaller Taiwanese Air Force to scramble jets every time they happen. So the levels of those are soaring. And then on top of that, you have this order by the commander in chief, Xi Jinping, telling his troops to lay everything else aside and just be prepared to fight and to win. So I, I think this just shows that Taiwan remains a powder keg, one of the biggest flashpoints on the globe. Um, there are actually several serious China watchers who believe that if Russia's war on Ukraine had gone differently, you know, if Russia had taken it in a few days or weeks, which was the plan, then Xi Jinping would have already invaded Taiwan earlier this year. Mm. But since he saw that the West had a bit more unity and a bit more spine, you know, than he thought, he'll instead take more time and just make sure that his soldiers are ready to win. So it definitely doesn't mean Taiwan is safe. It just means that a little bit of time has been bought. For Xi Jinping to uh, be putting the Chinese military on high alert. Uh, this is a massive military. This is a lot of resources that he has available. Maybe you could just talk about the the scope of what is at play here. Sure, yes. The, the People's Liberation Army, it is the largest military on earth in terms of number of active duty personnel. They've got about 2 million active troops, then an additional half a million reserve personnel, um, then another 600,000 paramilitary personnel. So just some stunning numbers there. They've also got about 3,300 aircraft and uh, 355 naval vessels, including a couple of aircraft carriers. So, you know, just a colossal force. And it's also interesting that since Xi Jinping came to power a decade ago, he's made all kinds of pretty painful reforms that put him at the top as unchallenged commander-in-chief of this force. There used to be a lot more bureaucracy and sort of some uh, unofficial checks and balances, but now it really is just Xi Jinping commanding this force directly. So when he tells them that the time has come to shift into a new gear of preparedness, that's an order that carries real weight, and we can be sure that it'll bring about some real change. Well, we do have uh, an article on this subject on the website that we will link to, and also uh, an article that Gerald Flurry wrote some years ago about this very situation, Taiwan betrayal, explaining how this really does show America's weakness, and uh, it shows China's determination to uh, unite Asia and to bring Taiwan under its power. Uh, we thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. The World Climate Summit is going on right now, and this year there is a bold new idea being promoted. To learn what it is, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, the COP27 summit in Egypt is a big deal. There are 24 thousand diplomats uh, attending 13,000 observers uh, you would have thought the biggest thing that it could do for the climate would be to cancel itself and so, uh, <laughs> save that huge number of airplane flights it's also sponsored by coca-cola which uh, 
makes it amuses me this is a company that makes three million tons of plastic packaging every year uh the equivalent of two hundred thousand bottles per minute but if you sponsor a climate change summit you're all good mm-hmm. that that doesn't matter uh but that's the uh, that's a good flavor of the summit that is going on at the moment u.s president joe biden arrives there today he's due to speak actually uh awkwardly in between us recording this and this playing. Uh, I think the speech starts in just a a few minutes. The British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, he was there for a while earlier in the week. And the big push from this summit is rich countries have a duty to hand over cash to poor countries. Environmental reparations, this is being called. So this is something that used to be much more of a fringe idea entering the mainstream. Um... The philosophy behind this is interesting. The argument basically is Britain invented the modern world. Therefore, all the problems of the modern world are Britain's fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we brought about the Industrial Revolution, modern democracy, all of this kind of thing. So any problems, uh, we need to cough up for it. Uh, so, I mean, I guess nice of them to credit us for that. But uh <laughs> not the most credible position. But also the argument is, well, climate change is going to cause more floods, it's going to cause more disasters, and it's going to be the poor countries that will be both the least able and the ones most affected by this. Therefore, uh, the rich should be handing over cash. Now, you look at the, the, the real picture and you, you, you start to look at what's going on in some of these different countries and you see something something very different. Pakistan, for example, is a key focus in this climate rep- reparations debate. Uh, they just had some massive flooding and they you know, they were incredibly, incredible floods. Uh, off the chart, gigantic, huge death toll. But you take a bit of a closer look and is it pollution in Britain that's causing these floods or pollution in America or anywhere else? Well, actually, uh, when Britain left Pakistan in 1947, one third of the country was covered in forest. Now it's one twentieth. So what happens when you cut down that kind of volume of trees? The water just flows very quickly from the hills and mountains into reservoirs. They burst, you get floods. Uh, There's no... Rep, there's no Western country in the mix here. Uh, I mean, even if you're going to buy into this idea of climate change causing floods, Pakistan has a thousand coal mines. So if somehow burning coal is what is causing this, well, they're burning their own coal. Uh, so it's not a it's not a policy that uh, that has a huge amount of logic, but it's a policy. Britain's prime minister said he was open to negotiating. Uh, This could be one of the big things that comes out of this COP27 summit. Uh, But it's also a policy that really does uh, go back, expose what this climate change movement is is all about. We had uh, an article from Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry in 2017 called What the Paris Climate Change Agreement Was All About. And the whole thrust of that article is that this is all about bringing down the West and uh, trying to, it's using climate change as an excuse to attack Britain and uh, to attack America. He said everyone should want a clean environment and for everything to function properly, we should be good stewards of this beautiful planet. But the Paris Climate Change Agreement was not about that. Uh, A bit further down, he said, what is happening here is not about the environment. It is about destroying the United States. The regulations this accord binds America to, to abide by and if funding and funding it obligates to America to provide accomplish that purpose very nicely. And this trend is just accelerating. This is significantly beyond what Paris was doing. Paris stayed away from climate reparations. That was considered too controversial. Uh, but now, now here we are. And this, uh, the fact that this whole movement is an attack on on Britain and America stands even more exposed. This idea that rich nations owe poor nations reparations for their carbon emission sins is so bizarre. It's it's stunning that this is being given serious consideration. But you have to wonder if the people who are pushing this notion actually believe in this, if they believe that this is just, or if they know that it's simply a way to bring down America or, or to bring down Britain. Right. And especially as you look 
I mean, I'm, I'm more aware of the familiar the figures for the UK than for America, but uh, the amount that Britain has brought down carbon emissions is stunning. Um, like it has been, I think Britain, yeah, they're they're back to the same level they were in 1857, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of this cutting has taken place over the last 20 years. So you know, this has happened. They've done what they've we've done what they've been calling us to do, and so the goalposts shift. It's not reducing climate emissions anymore, yep. and it becomes some of these other destructive policies. And of course, you know, it's handing over money to dictatorships and to corrupt countries. Uh, you know, giving money to the leadership of a corrupt country isn't going to do any favors to the people on the ground there. Uh, so, you know, it's easy to sympathize with, say, rich countries handing money to poor. But unfortunately, solving our problems is a lot more complicated than throwing money or is just not as throwing money at them isn't the solution. Mm-hmm. But it does. I mean, it, we talk about this booklet, America Under Attack, so much on on this show because it exposes the spiritual dimension behind the problems that we see in the world. And I think a subject like this just shows how everything that we're talking about needs you know, how it affects the whole world how this spiritual understanding manifests itself and how you cannot really understand all of these different facets of world news without understanding this spiritual dimension and that's you know that's at the core of this book i mean that's at the core of a lot of what we're talking about that uh, man's problems as mr armstrong said are spiritual in nature and so we have to get the people's perspective if we're going to understand world news uh, and so, you know, it's a great subject to show why we need to understand uh, America under attack that gives us that biblical perspective to understand these different headlines. All right. Very good. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up. Another massive setback for Russia in its war in Ukraine. Illegal immigration soaring in Europe. Iran threatening Saudi Arabia and the terrible economic climate in America today. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Russia suffered another humiliating blow in its war in Ukraine this week. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, over the last few days, Russian soldiers withdrew from all positions in the Kherson pocket. This was the uh, last remaining bit of territory that Russia still occupied to the west of the Dnieper River. It was also the only regional capital that Russia had captured since the start of its it's a full-fledged war this year. So just a serious blow to the Russians. And Kherson is actually the same area that Ukraine announced uh, that it was going to assault about four months ago. That ended up being kind of a feint. But at that time, Russia forward positioned somewhere between 20,000 and 40,000 troops there. And both sides will tell you that these were the best troops Russia has, uh, has left anyway, the best gear and the best training. And they were holding ground well until just about a month ago when someone destroyed the rail side of the Kerch Strait Bridge. That's the bridge that connects Western Russia to Crimea. And blowing it up made it extremely difficult for Russia to supply all of those soldiers ever since then. So ammo, food, fuel, reinforcements, everything was drying up. There was actually a really interesting trend reported by some Ukrainians fighting in this area. Um, Normally, soldiers engage in this kind of combat have to do something called shoot and scoot. You fire at an enemy position and then you, you know, you scoot away because the enemy can track your shells outgoing trajectory um, and then they can return fire on you. So you scoot away so that you're not there anymore when that return fire arrives. But Ukraine started to notice that there was very little return fire from the Russians in Kherson, you know, since shortly after the Kerch Strait Bridge was blown up just because ammo was so low. So they were able to start to shoot and not scoot and Ukraine made some really big gains because of that. So the the pressure just kept on mounting on these Russians. And then this week, as much as they hated to abandon this vital holding, as I said, the only regional capital that they captured this year, they had to retreat. So it is uh, similar to what we saw in the Kharkiv and Izium areas a couple of months ago. It's another one of the biggest military routes of forces since World War II. Um, And the hasty nature of this withdrawal also means more large quantities of Russian weaponry will probably be transferred to Ukraine. So just a 
major setback for Russia. Geopolitical strategist Peter Zion talked about this yesterday. He said, the Hearson withdrawal does mark the end of any hope that Russians had of regaining any sort of strategic initiative or any sort of meaningful offensive operations until at least May. So, you know, just a big humiliation for Russia and a major setback in this war effort. So uh, what happens what happens next year? The, the, the conversation that we've been having for, for quite some time is just how uh, uh, failure is not an option as far as uh, Vladimir Putin is concerned. If conventional forces are, are struggling this much, and th- this really is strategically, uh, this is an area that just short, a short time ago, he said these people are Russian citizens, that, that they annexed this, uh, this region. And, uh, you know, it was a very decisive and, uh, you know, bold statement that he made for them to be pulling back of this. There's a, there's a whole lot at play. In fact, some some Russians say this is, you know, this is the biggest setback, biggest catastrophe since the Soviet Union fell. The fact that we're uh, falling back here. Um, wh- what what happens next in light of just the, the scale of this kind of a setback? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, this is territory that officially, at least according to those referendums that were announced, this is Russian territory that he has just lost and retreated from. So it really undermines the whole sham of those referendums. The fact that he did retreat, I don't think if it was if this was, you know, St. Petersburg or something like that, that he would have backed out that way. But um, but yeah, the, this whole thing is prompting more and more Russians to leave the country. More and more affluent Russians are second guessing Putin and even calling for him to be replaced. Um, but we we do have to remember when we're trying to think about what comes next, that Vladimir Putin has survived all kinds of turmoil for 22 years at Russia's home, particularly this year. He's survived all kinds of catastrophic losses. Um, and there are still plenty of things that could turn things around. We could see Putin declare full-scale war. You know, up until now, he's still just called it a limited military operation, and he has only declared a partial mobilization. So if he declared full war, that would authorize a national draft, mass mobilization. It would put Russia's economy on wartime footing, meaning that pretty much all of Russian industry could be directed toward the war effort. There's also China a very big player here. Up to this point, China has mostly just provided indirect support economically and politically. But in the first half of the show, we talked about Xi Jinping's new order for his 2 million troops to get ready for war. And if he starts sending some of them into Ukraine or even sending a lot of weapons, that could turn the tides pretty quickly. There's also a chance that Putin could start using weapons of mass destruction, you know, chemical or, or even nuclear. Putin has no shortage of both. So there are uh, plenty of things that could still turn this around and help Russia to start gaining ground again. In light of Bible prophecy, what do you expect to happen here? Yeah, well, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, he's been sounding the alarm about Putin really since the early 2000s. And that is because of Bible prophecies that talk about a massive alliance of Asian powers that will come about in the modern era. One of the key passages that he goes to quite often is Ezekiel 38, um, which Mr. Fleury says shows that this Asian alliance will be led by a specific Russian ruler. And he has identified Putin as that ruler um, who will be at the head, not just of Russia, but of the whole Asian alliance. And in his 2017 booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry dives into the details of Ezekiel 38, and he ties it in with several other Bible scriptures showing just how destructive this alliance and, and Putin will, uh, will be. So I just think that we need to carefully watch him in this war and really in all other aspects of his rule. And for anyone who would like to better understand how to watch him with that big picture in mind, I would encourage them to email us for a free hard copy of that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Very good. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. Illegal immigration is soaring in Europe. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, illegal immigration coming into the European Union is starting to hit levels that we've not seen since 2016. So the latest data coming in from Frontex, the EU border agency, shows that uh, in September, Uh, illegal immigration was up 70% over the last year. So that was about 230,000 illegal entries uh, in the year so far. 
uh, I think just for the month of September, it was up 25%. And uh, a lot of that is up with people coming in through the East Mediterranean, people coming in through the Balkans, uh, and uh, coming up through Tunisia, from pe people coming from Egypt, Syria, uh, Afghanistan even. But uh, all of this, of course, opens up a whole range of uh, unrest within Europe and arguments within Europe. You saw this most notably in Italy, where there was a, a ship, a rescue ship, Ocean Viking, that had picked up a bunch of migrants in the sea. They wanted to come along and uh, dump them all on Italy. Italy said, no, we'll take the women and the children, but not the men. They've got to stay in the boat. Uh, the ship operator said, well, that's not acceptable. And uh, you kind of had this... Uh, growing situation where there were people cramped on this boat. Italy was refusing to take them in. In the end, France said, fine, we'll do it. Uh, but we're canceling an agreement that we signed with Italy earlier. So it, it's causing social unrest. You know, The unrest already that was present due to migration is a key reason why Giorgia Maloney is in Italy in the first place. It's upsetting politics all across Europe domestically. It's also upsetting relationships within and between nations as well. It was exactly this kind of activity that brought Maloney into power. This is a, this is the type of thing that has empowered quite a few leaders across Europe who have been uh, anti-immigration. And it, it, there, there are a lot of Europeans who are really, uh, they want something to be done about this. This is driving politics in Europe in many ways. That's right. And then think about the, some of the things that go with this high immigration, you know, like the easier ability for terrorists to come over into Europe, uh, the radicalization, the ghettoization, where you have European cities that are a quarter or more Muslim. Uh, and then some of the poverty, the, some of the social problems that brings. We talked about Italy. You look up at Sweden, where grenades on the street have now become a regular part of uh, poorer neighborhoods in big cities, something that, you know, I'm sure these neighborhoods were never fantastic to begin with, but did not have to deal with violence on that kind of a scale. You can see how this is really driving politics or changing politics in Europe and pushing us towards having a new kind of leader. I think we see that playing out in the early stages in the way that this has brought to power people like Maloney, the Sweden Democrats, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany. But you have another wave of this and the potential there is huge. Here's what uh, Mr. Flurry wrote about this in his article, The Holy Roman Empire Goes Public Big Time. He said, a trend is unfolding in Europe that you should keep a close watch on. Europeans have been besieged by immigrants from the Middle East, growing Muslim populations within their midst, cityscapes filling with mosques and minarets, portions of their cities turning into Muslim enclaves that local police dare not enter, even Islamic terrorist attacks. And more and more Europeans are looking for solutions in their own history, specifically their religious history. So all of these changes that we've been forecasting, because the Bible forecasts them, this more Catholic, more political religion, uh, role or religion playing a more of a role in everyday politics. That has already changed due to radical Islam. This rise of strongman politics, this rise of a strong leader, this is changing. And you can see that uh, the migrant crisis driving all of these prophesied changes. And we have an article back from the 2016 wave of the migrant crisis titled Germany Migrants and the Big Lie that goes through this. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. We'll link to that article, the as well as the Holy Roman Empire goes public big time. We have an article about the uh, this recent surge in Ill illegal immigration. You can uh, watch. You can uh, find that on thetrumpet.com. Thank you very much, Mr. Palmer. Protests against the Iranian regime continue. Saudi Arabia seems to be enjoying this unfolding within its regional rival, and Iran is not happy about it. For this, we'll go back to Joshua Taylor. Yeah, as you said, they are regional rivals, and Saudi Arabia has been reveling in this, and specifically their news media. Uh, most of the media, news media in uh, Saudi Arabia is controlled by the government, and that news media has been pushing a pretty anti-regime message because Saudi Arabia really does see this as an opportunity to either uh, continue to destabilize uh, its biggest rival, Iran, or even maybe even cause regime change. This is a phenomenal opportunity for them, and they are trying their hardest to really push them over the edge. And Iran is going is <laughs> they're pretty mad at Saudi Arabia. They they are not liking it. 
on Wednesday, Iran's intelligence minister point blank said, until now, Iran has adopted strategic patience with firm rationality, but it cannot guarantee that it will not run out if hostilities continue. If Iran decides to retaliate and punish, glass palaces will crumble, referring to the homes of the Saudi Arabian uh, royal family. And this isn't the only threat they've made in this vein. Last month, Iran's uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps chief warned Saudi Arabia that it had to start uh, bringing its media under control, saying, I am warning the Saudi ruling family, watch your behavior and control these media. Otherwise, you will pay the price. This is our last warning because you are interfering in our state matters through these media. And we even this... uh, a report came out last week from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Iran might have actually been close to fulfilling that threat. Uh, last week, Saudi Arabia uh, report, uh, shared some intelligence with the United States, warning that an imminent attack from Iran on Saudi Arabian targets was imminent. Now, those attacks haven't uh, happened. Maybe the fact that this leak occurred uh, deterred them from doing it. But the point remains that Iran is... Uh, this might be one of those times where Iran isn't just spewing rhetoric. They might fulfill these threats that they're making. We've drawn a lot of attention over the years to the uh, this division between Iran and Saudi Arabia and other nations within the Middle East allying with one or the other, specifically because of the role that each of these nations play in Bible prophecy. Can you just bring our listeners up to speed on these two camps in the Middle East? Yeah. So uh, basically, our coverage of the Middle East revolves around two very key chapters of prophecy. Uh, The first one that we draw a lot of attention to is Daniel 11, where in it, it, the Bible prophecies of a prophesies of a king of the south. Now, Mr. Gerald Flurry in his book, The King of the South, identifies that camp as radical Islam led specifically by Iran. So you have that. That's what we why we focus so much of our coverage on Iran. But on the other side, another prophecy that we look at is Psalm 83, or, or what we call on the program a lot, the Psalm 83 Alliance. Now, that alliance is going to be led by a uh, German-led European Union. But if you look at the other nations, a part of that, you see the other kind of half of the Middle East. You see uh, the more moderate, almost, uh, and Sunni nations, such as Saudi Arabia, very predominantly, and a few others. So when you see these two regional rivals, Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, bickering like this, you really are starting to see these two camps, uh, the Daniel 11 and Psalm 83 camps forming in the Middle East. So when you see them making threats and pushing each other like this, it's just really setting the stage for this coming uh, clash between these two powers. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Taylor. If you want to learn more about that prophecy, you can read about that in our booklet, The King of the South. That is available at thetrumpet.com. We'll link to it in the show notes for the program today. Joe Biden's first term begins its second half now amid terrible economic news for America. For this story, we'll go back to Andrew Miller. Yeah, just because it looks like Republicans are uh, going to do well in House elections doesn't mean the bitter affliction on America is over by any means. Now, uh, uh, Joe Biden did uh, do quite a bit of bragging, as is his want, about the new report that inflation has come down below 8%, barely. Um and then got on a plane to head out to Egypt to talk about how much money, much more money he's going to spend on climate change. Mm-hmm. But you take a, a a bigger picture. They actually say that real wages in America have fallen for the nineteenth straight month. So that's pretty much since Biden took office. He's been months, uh, office a little bit more than that. But basically, since Biden's been in office, real wages have been falling. Uh, to where they're about 4% lower than they were a year ago. So uh, inflation might be 8%, and then people got about 4% raises, but then you adjust for it, and it's like said, 19 straight months, people making less money. Uh, Auto delinquencies have hit a 10-year high as people just can't afford uh, their car payments. Uh, Housing uh, housing sales are at a 10-year low uh, there, there was one Republican representative saying that things are pretty well in place to be worse than they were uh, in the, the Jimmy Carter years. 
And uh, people are believing him because I, I saw this is probably the most interesting economic story I saw this week from a CBS News that they they did a study and they estimate that about 10 percent of America's population could be classified as like preppers or doomsday survivalist in that they're at, at least taking some measure, whether it's buying gold, buying silver stocking food but like preparing for like the complete economic implosion of the united states when you're looking at these type of numbers as you're seeing uh that the biden administration's produced for us to me this is one of the the big mysteries uh quote unquote about the uh the election results that we just had terrible terrible economic climate in in uh, America and uh, for Biden to come away from this election uh, trumpeting this supposed victory uh, for for his party and the idea that Americans are just fine with with all of this. It just defies logic. Yeah, he's not chastised at all. I mean, he just came out of an election where by all indications, he lost the House of Representatives uh, and probably will only be able to hold on to the Senate if there's widespread cheating. Uh, and yet his big takeaway is, is that this was a big loss for Republicans. He hasn't done anything wrong economically uh, and is bragging about inflation being lower than it's been in 38 years instead of lower or higher than it's been in 38 years instead of higher than it's been in 40 years you've had a, a big come down barely and he's just talking about like this this is the greatest economic recovery ever uh, and so for our listeners i mean obviously the the, the two resources we're going to put in the show notes for this story today are the how to solve your money trouble and america under attack that how to solve your money trouble will will uh will help that 10 percent of the the nation who's prepping for the doomsday uh and hopefully a bunch of other people as well actually look at like real practical steps you can take to make sure that your finances are in order in an economy that's probably going to get worse and that America under attack really does explain like prophetically what is uh, what's happening here, because it talks about that that book's really built around a, a verse in Second Kings 14 that talks about like a bitter affliction in end time Israel that God will temporarily spare it from uh, using a using a Republican figure that will most likely bring back a little bit of economic stability to America. But like in that bitter affliction stage, we were talking about this a little bit on our, our Tuesday show that it's even though um, Barack Obama is running the scenes behind the nation right now, uh, the, the economic affliction is <laughs> far worse working through his puppet Joe Biden than it was when he was even president outright. Um, like I said, you're, you're, you're looking back at economic statistics that you have not seen since the Jimmy Carter years uh, and and a number of pretty smart people who think it may even get worse than it was uh, in the Jimmy Carter years <laughs> uh, prepping for uh, uh, as I said, it gets much worse like you could definitely prep for uh, an even much bigger red wave than uh, than we saw uh, mm -hmm. a few nights ago yeah all right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Joshua Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Theodore Roosevelt. It is a wicked thing to be neutral between right and wrong. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.